everyone, and welcome to the Bridgetown Podcast. My name is Bethany, and today I'm honored to share with you a podcast from our friend, author, and brilliant therapist, Tristan Collins. If you're a faithful listener, you'll know that Tristan has been with us before and has been a huge help to us in understanding our responses and emotions in this very crazy COVID-19 season. Now, in this podcast, Tristan will share with us some helpful thoughts around anger and how we navigate it, especially within our current cultural climate. We really hope you'll enjoy what she has to share. Hi, this is Tristan Collins. It's 2020, and a lot of people are feeling angry. We're angry about COVID-19. We're angry about social injustice. Anger is in our social media feeds and especially in the comment sections. The economy is unstable and politics are divisive. All of our expectations are being thwarted and a lot of us are feeling angry. So what are we supposed to do with our anger? Anger is like fire. It can be the source of energy in life or it can destroy. And we know from recent events, an untamed fire is dangerous and deadly. The West Coast just witnessed rapid fires consuming and destroying everything in their path. In the same way, our anger can come on quickly and become destructive as well. Anger can singe our relationships and can lead to physical violence. Anger can smoke out opportunities. Anger can consume us and burn down communities. But when fire is managed and contained, it can create a lot of good. It can keep us warm as well as generate energy. Fire can also be used to refine, burning away the dross and revealing a real treasure. Just like humans learn to use fire as an ally, we need to learn how to use our anger as an ally. Our anger can help us to focus on being agents of change and energize us to confront problems. And like a mirror, anger reflects back to us our expectations about the world so we can examine them. God gave us the emotion of anger as a gift, and it benefits us to use it wisely. So let's talk about anger as an important emotion that God gave us. If you're new to thinking about the inner world of emotions, I suggest this metaphor. Think of emotions like signals on the dashboard of your car. A car dashboard gives us information about what is going on in and around the car. And it's up to the driver to decide what to do with the information. In a similar way, our emotions are signals for the dashboard of our body. So if we think of emotions like a dashboard, what does anger signal? At a basic level, anger signals an unmet expectation. Something we want or think should happen isn't happening. We all expect the world to be a certain way and for our lives to go a certain way. We have expectations about how people should behave. We have expectations about how things ought to work. And when the world isn't how we think it should be, we experience anger. Our expectations can be assumptions about how things usually are. There shouldn't be traffic at this hour. It shouldn't rain in August. Our expectations can be preferences about how things should operate. That restaurant shouldn't have messed up my food order. Our expectations can be about our needs or the things we believe we require in life to be happy. I want to be married by 30. I want my job to be meaningful and fulfilling. Our expectations can reflect how we think the world ought to be. These are moral expectations that arise from a deep sense of what is right and what is wrong. Moral expectations sound like, people should tell the truth. People should be held accountable for the damage they create. Regardless of the expectation, whether big or small, whether conscious or unconscious, when it isn't met, we feel angry. 
our expectations are connected to our hope for a better world. The world is not as it should be. In this way, anger is a great gift to us because it allows us to work towards making the world a better place. The challenge is this. Anger is a powerful emotion that can be used with wisdom to make the world better, or left unchecked, can become a dangerous emotion that can destroy life around us. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Be angry, but do not sin. The way towards a life of thriving is using our anger carefully and wisely for the purpose of love and unity. With this in mind, here are four steps to use anger with wisdom. Step one, allow yourself to cool. Because anger has so much potential for destruction, first give yourself some space to let the potency of anger die down. Like an overenthusiastic helper, anger tends to overshoot, giving you more energy and aggression than you actually need. Many of us have trouble thinking clearly when we're angry, and we're prone to say or do things we later regret. So instead of making that comment on Instagram or sending that text message, wait until you've cooled down and processed your anger. By choosing to cool down and reflect before we act, we're choosing to turn our anger into something productive. Focus on slowing down your body and take deep breaths. Focus on your present surroundings, what you can see, hear, smell, and touch. Visualize your favorite place. Go for a run or a walk or write out your anger in a journal. All of these activities allow the intensity of your anger to come down to a level where it's present and energizing, but not destructive or disabling. Just don't confuse the decreased energy when you calm down as being the same thing as addressing the problem that triggered your anger. Now, it isn't always appropriate to escape and calm down. Perhaps someone is pressuring you to do something mean or foolish and you're feeling angry. If you tried saying no and the other person won't respect you, you may need to use your anger to stand your ground in the moment. Or perhaps you or someone else is being physically threatened. Use your anger to fight for what is right in the moment. You might not do it in the best way, but you can apologize later. But most of the time, we don't have to solve the problem in that exact moment, and it's more helpful to take time to cool off. And that leads us to our next step. Step two, evaluate your thoughts. When our bodies experience anger, our minds will automatically come up with reasons why we're angry. We'll call these reasons our automatic thoughts because they arise quickly and without any mental effort. Automatic thoughts are typically black and white and are not interested in nuance. In fact, they often use words like always and never. She never listens to me. He always brings up the past. These thoughts are what cognitive behavioral therapy calls all or nothing thinking. Automatic thoughts are typically full of thinking errors and cognitive distortions. Christians call them lies. If we don't evaluate our automatic thoughts, but instead dwell on them, these thoughts will create more anger, anxiety, and depression. A great tool for evaluating our thoughts is called the work. It's a process of reflecting on your thoughts designed by the author Byron Katie. Let's say your uncle posted a political rant on Facebook and you feel angry. And your automatic thought is, Uncle Phil is a horrible person. First, ask yourself, is it true? You might say, yes. Okay, second, can I absolutely know it's true? Well, his political rants are horrible, but he's not always like this. Third, how do I react or what happens when you believe that thought? I get angry. 
My jaw is tense. My neck and shoulders are tight. I'm grumpy with my family. All day I'm thinking of ways to write a cutting and clever comment on his post. Fourth, who would I be without the thought? Well, I'd feel less tension in my body, and I wouldn't be so irritable with my family, and I wouldn't feel so angry throughout the day. After the four questions, there's one last step. Take your automatic thought and turn it around and consider three reasons the opposite could be true. The opposite thought here is Uncle Phil isn't a horrible person. Well, he loves his family. He is respectful when we talk about other things. He does care for and help people in his community. The work is a way to examine your automatic thoughts from different angles, which allows you to loosen your attachment to the thought. And it also facilitates new thoughts. Your uncle is triggering your anger for a reason, and it isn't as simple as he is a horrible person. There are all sorts of expectations being violated on social media. Here's some examples. I expect people to be more civil. I expect people to take a joke. I expect people should think the way that I think. I expect to enjoy some lighthearted dog photos instead of reading your latest conspiracy theory. Underneath our anger is an expectation that is being threatened. Our mission is to figure out the expectation so we can use our anger productively. That leads us to step three. Examine your expectations. First, ask yourself, is this expectation worth keeping? Not all of our expectations in life are worth keeping. Some of our expectations are misguided or wrong. When I was first married, I expected that my husband should know my needs without me telling him what they are. I wanted a mind reader, but that isn't a reasonable expectation to have. Perhaps you have unreasonable expectations for your partner, for your family, for the leaders in your life, or for your coworkers. You might even have some unreasonable expectations for yourself. Ask God for wisdom to identify and adjust unrealistic expectations. Some expectations are worth keeping. It's good to expect honesty, kindness, safety, and respect. It's good to expect healthy relationships, rest, opportunities to work and play. Hold on to these types of expectations. Next, examine how your expectations may be in conflict with someone else's expectations. This often happens with moral expectations. Take, for example, this angry conflict happening right now in every city. Some people have the expectation the government shouldn't mandate wearing masks, while others have the expectation, I shouldn't even have to ask you to wear a mask. Behind both of these remarks are two different moral frameworks that leads us to different expectations. The first is the moral framework of liberty, that it's immoral to limit the freedom of others. The second is the moral framework of care, that it's immoral to cause other people to suffer. Knowing when there are competing expectations will help you to find the best way to problem solve. Step four, redirect your anger towards compassionate confrontation. We all know that confrontation is difficult and often backfires. It's very challenging to confront others, so we usually procrastinate until the problem is huge. Confrontations can quickly turn into name-calling, shouting, and emotional distance. And yet, if we avoid working through our conflict, our intimate relationships will become distant and cold. John and I have been married for 17 years. We have seen various therapists throughout our marriage to help our communication. There's one communication strategy that has brought the biggest change in how we navigate conflict. It's the framework of nonviolent communication. It was developed during the civil rights era by Marshall Rosenberg, and it's also known as compassionate communication. 
In the 60s, Rosenberg used this framework to peacefully resolve conflict arising from the desegregation of schools in long segregated regions. Can you imagine the anger in those communities? One basic premise of compassionate communication is this. Everyone has foundational needs that we are all trying to get met. Some examples of foundational needs are things like safety, peace, intimacy, empathy, honesty, belonging, and play. We expect those we love to meet our needs, and when our needs aren't met, we feel angry. The brilliance of compassionate communication is the realization that our conflicts aren't about the needs, our conflicts are about the strategies we use to meet our needs. A lot of John and I's conflict happens in the car when he's driving. I might tell him that he's driving too close to the person in front of us. And if I keep pointing out danger, he'll eventually explode. Stop telling me how to drive. Now I'm really angry that he would be so angry. And we're off to the races to see who can display enough self-righteous indignation and moral superiority. Spoiler, we both lose. Compassionate communication is a way to bypass the downward spiral of conflict. If we can identify our foundational needs, we can figure out strategies that honor both of us. I have a need to feel safe while John is driving, and so I expect John to drive cautiously and carefully. I've been in multiple motor accidents and my body remembers. John has a need for independence and peace, and he expects limited feedback on his driving. As we put our needs on the table, we were able to come up with a better strategy. John doesn't care about being the one driving and can feel independent and at peace riding shotgun. Ultimately, John does care about me and wants me to feel safe. And I care about his need to feel independent and peaceful. So our strategy became simple. I drive, especially when I'm feeling anxious. It's hard to tell people what we really need. It will feel vulnerable and scary. This is why we use unproductive strategies to get our needs met instead of being straightforward about our needs. Anger will let you know a need is not being met. And the best strategy is to communicate your needs directly. The opposite tact is also useful. If someone's making you angry, you can step back and try to think about what needs they might have underneath their behavior. You're likely upset about their strategy, but you might feel more compassion for their underlying needs. Your uncle's angry political posts on Facebook is a strategy to meet a need. Your coworker's belittling comments is a strategy to meet a need. And your child's whining and arguing is trying to meet a need. Anger can signal that we don't like the strategy someone is using to meet their needs. As Christians, we need to remember that God gave us anger to fight for what is good. And one thing we can fight for is unity. The early church brought people from different economic circles and ethnic backgrounds and asked them to live like family. But when we try to live unified with people with different traditions, different perspectives, and different expectations, we can get angry. It's no wonder Paul was interested in anger. Here's what he wrote in the letter to the Ephesians. We are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. We already mentioned in this first command, be angry and do not sin. Some sin that arises from anger is obvious, like violence or slander, but other sin is less obvious, like contempt. Contempt views a person as worthless. It's not disgust for a person's behavior, but rather disgust and disdain for that person. When anger turns into contempt, it's a warning sign that the relationship is in deep trouble. Contempt is a red flag that your marriage is heading towards divorce. 
By letting anger stew instead of addressing it, we give room for contempt to grow. Paul cared a lot about the unity of the church. We are members of one another, he said. When the unity between people is threatened, let yourself feel angry about that. In fact, anger can be a reflection of deep love. Paul often expresses his anger towards those who spread lies and create divisions in the church because his love for the unity of the church was so great. Paul also tells us, don't let the sun go down on our anger. In other words, don't sit on your anger. Don't let it build up over time. Don't create room for evil to get involved and create division. When you're angry, take care of the problem quickly so you can move on towards harmony with others. Start dealing with your anger today. Our natural inclination for feeling anger is for the person at fault to pay for the damage they've done. We desire justice. This is a good desire, but we are not the ones who can make everything right. That responsibility is ultimately God's. Sometimes the best thing to do for someone who made you angry is to forgive them. To be clear, when you forgive someone or accept forgiveness, it doesn't make what happened okay. It doesn't mean you have to be in close relationship with a forgiven person. We can forgive and still establish healthy boundaries. Forgiveness is a decision to let go of justice on your own terms and instead let God handle justice. It means letting go of retribution and trusting God to be the one who will ultimately right wrongs. If you're a follower of Jesus, forgiveness needs to be a way of life. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Jesus tells a story of a man who refused to forgive a subordinate's small debt even after his own master had forgiven his insurmountable debt. At the end of the story, Jesus says the master threw the man into prison to be tortured after he found out about his unforgiveness. Then he said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This saying of Jesus is undeniably harsh, but it's harsh for a reason. Unforgiveness is a decision to make ourselves the ultimate judge of what is good and bad instead of trusting God's knowledge and wisdom of what is truly good and bad. Unforgiveness eats away at our souls and drives a wedge between us and God. We are called to forgive because it brings freedom. It restores our relationship with God and others. As followers of Jesus, when we acknowledge the insurmountable debt that was paid on our behalf, it leads us to humility. It's easy for us to become self-righteous with our anger, yet Romans 3.10 says, there's no one righteous, not even one. The sobering reality is this, we don't meet God's expectations. But despite that, God desires to work with us, to make us more complete, to save us from ourselves. This is why God said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Notice that God gets angry, but is slow to anger. And God's slow anger is surrounded by compassion, grace, love, and faithfulness. If you want to learn more about God's anger, I'd recommend listening to the latest Bible Project podcast series on the character of God. Like God, we are called to be slow to anger. Our anger can be a tool for reconciliation with people and with our relationship with God. Realizing we don't measure up might make you angry at yourself. Maybe you aren't meeting your own expectations. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul felt as he wrote this passage to the Romans. I'll read it from the translation, the message. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, 
doing things I absolutely despise. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Something has gone wrong deep within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He believes in the power of Jesus to make him a more complete person. The anger we have in our failures should lead us to the hope we have in God's love for us. Our anger, revealing our own failures, can lead us to humility and transformation. Our hope is in the power of Jesus' deliverance and the Spirit's promise to finish God's good work within us. We've covered a lot of ground. As we wrap up, let's review the four steps. Step one, allow yourself to cool. It will help you to think more clearly. Step two, evaluate your automatic thoughts. They might be based on thinking errors or lies. Step three, evaluate your expectations so you have more clarity about your anger. Step four, problem solve using compassionate communication to seek unity and forgive as you've been forgiven. In Ephesians, Paul reminds us that our true fight is not against humans. Instead, the battle is against the unseen powers and evil in this dark world. People are not our enemy. Every human being is made in the image of God. The deeper problem is the evil that affects us all. Our hope in scripture is that God crushed the head of evil, and God gives us the power to confront and bring victory over the same evil in ourselves and in others. We are not alone. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have God as our loving parent and Jesus as our brother, and we can find true rest because the real battle has already been won. Let's pray. God of justice, have mercy on us. Forgive us for the ways we abuse our power and oppress your creation. Free us from the deceit and exhaustion from unseen spiritual forces. Help us to live from your intended design. Help us to remember that we have been gifted victory and a love that never ends. Thank you for fighting for us. Help us to use our power to uplift humanity. Transform us to prioritize your wisdom and love. Your ways are higher than our ways. Amen.